Maybe I can love you. Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is September 20th, 2021, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. So the title of today's podcast is Sepsis. You were always on my mind. But did I get the diagnosis right? And our guest skeptic is Dr. Jess Moniz. She is a consultant in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Hospital, Phoenix, Arizona. She is also an assistant professor, Department of Emergency Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Alex School of Medicine in Scottsdale, Arizona. And Jess also does the ultra summaries for EMRAP. Welcome to the SGM, Jess. Thanks, Ken. So honored to be invited. I really feel like I made the big leagues here. Well, I have been dying to have you on the program because I've worked with you before and got to teach with you together at Dr. Rick Bucata's great courses. And wow, you're an impressive educator. Well, I, I appreciate that. I don't know, you know, if that's true, but I certainly appreciate it. And I have to say, I think we've been lecturing together since 2015. Uh, the first time I met you was in Orlando, and this was pre-COVID, so super fun. Um, but I definitely missed you this past year. Yeah, it's been difficult, actually, with COVID. And I know everybody's talking about staying socially distant, but I think we should just frame that as being physically distant and staying socially connected. And so actually, this is part of my little wellness project to reach out and get some of the people that I really like to work with that I haven't been able to see for the last couple of years, like you, Jess, and get you on the SGEM as the guest skeptic. So thank you very much for accepting the invitation. Thank you for offering it. Well, give us a case. All right, let's do this. A 60-year-old man presents to the emergency department with a non-productive cough and increasing shortness of breath. He has a history of COPD, hypertension, CHF, BPH. He's afebrile, has a heart rate of 93, a blood pressure of 145 over 90, respiratory rate of 24, and an O2 sat of 92% on room air. So you send some blood work and the initial labs come back, slightly decreased platelet count at 149 and a minimally elevated creatinine at 1.21. So of course, he triggers a sepsis alert and you get this pop-up suggesting IV antibiotics and a 30 cc's per kg IV fluid bolus. So you ask yourself, is this guy really septic and should we be throwing everything at him? Ah, good question. Way to back up and start thinking about the case rather than just following an algorithm. We've covered sepsis many times on the SGEM since 2012. Yes, this is season number 10. This has included three large randomized control trials published in 2014 and 15, comparing early goal-directed therapy to usual care. And all three of these large multi-center international trials showed no statistical difference between the two treatment groups for their primary outcome. Right. And then there was the SGEM-174 that said, don't believe the hype around a vitamin C cocktail that was being promoted as a cure for sepsis. And the SGEM-207 that showed pre-hospital administration of IV antibiotics did improve time to get them in patients with suspected sepsis, but did not improve all-cause mortality. Yeah, uh, giving antibiotics in the pre-hospital setting does get antibiotics to 
patients who you suspect have sepsis earlier, but it didn't result in any improved all-cause mortality. Now, the SGM was part of a group of clinicians who were concerned about the updated 2018 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. Specifically, it was that fluids and antibiotics and pressure requirements within the first hour of being triaged in the emergency department that raised our concern. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, despite the lack of high-quality evidence to support these sepsis bundles, many hospitals incorporated them into their EMR. So they created these sepsis alerts with the intention of identifying septic patients so they can be treated according to these protocols. So I think most physicians agree that antibiotics should be given early in sepsis. No arguments there, right? However, the jury is still out for other interventions with potential for harm, particularly the 30 cc's per kg infusion of IV fluids. Yeah, and what bothers me is when these quality metrics are generated based on really weak evidence, and then we're judged by these quality metrics that you're not giving great care. And people don't go back and say, well, what was this quality metric originally based upon? But it's not that sepsis isn't a big deal. It is a big deal. Worldwide, sepsis contributes to the death of over 5 million hospitalized patients annually. By the way, Jess, that was my best Austin Power Dr. Evil impersonation. Pretty reasonable. I like the hand gesture. It is an audio podcast, so I thought it was important to put my pinky to the corner of my mouth and say 5 million hospitalizations. But it's also the leading cause of death in the intensive care unit in the U.S. and the most expensive diagnosis. Since 2015, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, has indexed the quality of hospital care for sepsis to the SEP1 score measure. Interventions, particularly early antibiotics, have been associated with improved mortality. Right, Ken. And as you know, diagnosing sepsis can be challenging. So to adequately capture patients, specificity has been sacrificed for better sensitivity. We care more about catching all the true positives and worry less if a few true negatives get mixed up in there. So using vital signs and lab abnormalities certainly picks up more patients, but it also identifies those without an infection. So patients with cirrhosis, toxicities, those on dialysis, you know, it's possible that some of these patients can be at risk of harm from one of the interventions in this treatment bundle. So Jess, what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's SGM podcast? Okay. What proportion of patients meeting sepsis criteria were actually diagnosed with sepsis and how many non-septic patients had risk factors for harm from aggressive fluid resuscitation? I really like that question because, you know, there is potential benefit to any intervention, but there's also potential harm to any treatment. So we have to look on where on that spectrum does the net effect land. So what reference do you have? Okay, so it's Littell et al. Most emergency department patients meeting sepsis criteria are not diagnosed with sepsis at discharge. It's from Academic Emergency Medicine 2021. And it is also clearly from the Rick Bucata School of Title Writing. Yeah, well done, Latell. Well done. All right, let's run through the PICO. What was the population or the cohort of patients included in the study? These were adult ED patients presenting to a tertiary academic medical center who met criteria for sepsis 3 or sepsis 3 plus shock. 
Sepsis 3 was defined as patients with a SOFA score greater than or equal to 2. So this is the full sequential organ failure assessment score and a suspected infection, which they identified if patients were given IV antibiotics within 24 hours of admission. Sepsis 3 plus shock was defined as sepsis 3 with an initial lactate greater than 2 and any systolic blood pressure less than 90. And they excluded trauma patients and those who were missing ICD-9 codes. This is because prophylactic antibiotics are often administered in traumatic or orthopedic injuries. Now, there is not an intervention in this kind of study, but what was the comparison? So they compared those with a sepsis diagnosis at discharge to those without a sepsis diagnosis at discharge. And let's go through their outcomes. What was their primary outcome? Okay, the primary outcome was the proportion of ED patients with suspected sepsis based on consensus criteria who were not diagnosed with sepsis at discharge. Basically, they were initially flagged as potentially septic, but didn't turn out to be. And how about the secondary outcomes? Proportion of non-septic patients at risk of harm from the administration of a rapid weight-based IV fluid bolus. Yeah, and the risk factors included things like congestive heart failure, which the patient had in the case you presented, cirrhosis, dialysis-dependent renal failure, and morbid obesity. Right, and they also looked at mortality for sepsis 3 and sepsis 3 plus patients. All right, and what type of study would this be classified as? This was a retrospective observational cohort study. Yeah, see, I changed it from a PICO to a PCOT there. I'm going to try to do that in season 10 of the SGEM. The author's conclusions, quote, most patients meeting sepsis criteria in the ED were not diagnosed with sepsis at discharge. This may result in many patients receiving sepsis treatment bundles that has the potential for harm, end of quote. All right, now we're going to go through the quality checklist for observational studies, and it is my second favorite number. Yes, that's right, 11. We have 11 quality checklist questions to go through for observational studies. Turn it up to 11. The first question, Jess, is did the study address a a clearly focused question? Yeah, I, I think it did. It tried to address the question, are we inaccurately identifying patients with sepsis and what proportion of the suspected but ultimately non-septic patients are at risk of harm from protocolized interventions? And did the authors use an appropriate method to answer their question? You know, I think a better method would have been a prospective cohort study. All right. And was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? Yeah, I think it was. They used administrative criteria for sepsis at the time of hospital discharge, and this was similar to previously published ICD-9-based strategies for chart abstraction. And was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? I have to go with no here, and it seems that they misapplied the sepsis criteria. So sepsis 3 states that the SOFA score should be an increase in organ dysfunction, meaning a change greater than or equal to 2 from the patient's baseline. Now, it appears that the study assumed a normal baseline and assigned a sepsis label with the assumption of initial score of 0. The problem is that this could overestimate the potentially septic patients. It sounds like you're already talking nerdy to me. Let's let's hold off on that until we get to the nerdy section, okay? Just cool your jets there, Jess. It's hard, Ken. It's just infused in me. I know. Welcome to the nerd zone. Question number five. Was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? 
Unclear. They did use explicit and implicit criteria that has been previously described for their primary outcome. However, we don't know if the patients were actually septic. Have the authors identified all important confounding factors? No. Again, they didn't mention if when calculating the SOFA score, they considered a change from baseline. As we just discussed, it appears they assumed an initial score of zero, which would not be possible if patients had the risk factors they mentioned. Patients with cirrhosis can have thrombocytopenia. Patients on dialysis can have elevated creatinines. So if they assume both were normal, this study would categorize them as potentially septic, thus inaccurately increasing the denominator. And I won't talk too much nerdy, but I'll just say one other thing here. And the other thing worth mentioning is that the authors ignored the respiratory component of the score and that missing data was assumed to be normal. So this could have the opposite effect and artificially underestimate the potentially septic patients. So maybe the two issues can cancel each other out. You see, this is why I invited you on the show, because you were so into the nerdy weeds already. I love it, (laughs) Jess. All right. How about an easy question? Was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Yes. I'm just going to go with yes. Okay. How precise are the results? Not very, given the limitations of the methodology. Do you believe the results? I believe the gist of the results. I think we've all come across a patient that meets sepsis criteria, but isn't actually septic. So theoretically, they could be treated with the sepsis bundle, which could potentially cause harm. So the authors didn't mention how many of the patients in their study received the SEP1 bundle or how many patients were actually harmed. So it's hard to get a good sense of that. Yeah, and the flip side of that would be we've all seen these occult septic patients that we didn't really expect it. And then it sort of caught our attention later. So I understand what you're trying to say there. How about can the results be applied to the local population? I don't think it's possible to really know. I mean, we don't know how sick these patients were at baseline. And so I think it's hard to generalize it to your demographic. I love it when people give the answer, it all depends. But I think my second favorite answer is, I don't know, which is a great answer when you don't know. All right, the final question, the 11th question. Do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Yeah. So a discrepancy between clinical criteria for suspected sepsis and administrative diagnosis of sepsis at discharge has been previously observed in at least one other study. All right, now for results. They identified just over 4,000 patients who received IV antibiotics and had a SOFA score of at least two. There were just under 1,000 patients excluded because of the primary trauma diagnosis and four patients with missing ICD-9 codes. There were just over 3,000 patients meeting the sepsis-3 criteria and just over 1,000 patients meeting the sepsis-3 plus shock criteria. The mean age in the cohort was 60 years, and just over a third were female. Jess, what was the key result? So most patients meeting sepsis criteria were not diagnosed with sepsis at discharge. All right, yeah, and the primary outcome, that was the proportion of ED patients with suspected sepsis based on some consensus criteria who were not diagnosed with sepsis at the time of discharge. But give us some actual numbers to get our head around what you mean by most. 
So 75% of patients meeting sepsis 3 criteria did not receive an explicit diagnosis of sepsis at discharge, and about half did not receive an implicit diagnosis. So that's a supermajority for sepsis 3 criteria on explicit criteria, and a simple majority, and it was 52%, who didn't meet sepsis 3 criteria based on an implicit diagnosis. In addition, over half, 52% again, of patients meeting sepsis 3 plus shock criteria did not receive an explicit diagnosis of sepsis at discharge, and 38%, so just over a third, did not receive an implicit diagnosis. Now let's talk about the secondary outcomes, and this was the proportion of non-septic patients at risk of harm from the protocolized administration of this rapid 30 cc's per kilogram, weight-based crystalloid bolus. All right. Well, about 40% of the patients meeting sepsis 3 criteria and 30% of patients meeting sepsis 3 plus shock were not diagnosed with sepsis at discharge, but did have at least one risk factor for harm from the large volume fluid resuscitation. Yeah, about 30% treated for suspected sepsis had no infectious etiology found. The most common non-infectious diagnosis were overdose, inhaled pneumonitis, acute respiratory failure, DKA, or diabetic ketoacidosis, and acute renal failure. There was a 9% mortality rate in the sepsis-3 patients and a 16% mortality rate in the sepsis-3 plus shock patients. All right, I know you tried to jump the gun there, Jess, but now you get to shine. Now... We're going to talk a little nerdy. Are you excited? Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. Oh, great. Okay, so I'm going to go with the first one. And this is the retrospective study design. This is the PCOT. This is the T in PCOT. What was the trial design? And the authors used a retrospective method to collect the data. The study was not originally designed to answer the question that was being asked in this study. The retrospective methodology may have both overestimated the patients that would have been considered septic by assuming a normal baseline and underestimating the patients by assuming normal values when data was missing. Sepsis 3 states that the SOFA score should be an increase in organ dysfunction, meaning a change of of equal to or greater than 2 from baseline. It appears that the study assumed a normal baseline and assigned sepsis label if the SOFA score was greater than or equal to 2. This leads to uncertainty and greater difficulty in interpreting the data. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the diagnosis of sepsis. How accurate was the diagnosis of sepsis? So ICD-10 codes are used for SEP1 core measures in reporting to CMS. However, the study used ICD-9 codes as the reference standard for the final diagnosis. So this could have led to misattribution bias. It would have been less likely to occur using explicit codes rather than implicit codes, which are comparatively more ambiguous. Yeah, there's, there, we have more confidence around explicit codes rather than implicit codes. All right, the third nerdy point was about the SOFA score itself. Now, SOFA has a good but not great ability to predict outcomes from sepsis in various populations. 
sepsis 3 states that the SOFA score should be an increase in organ dysfunction, like I mentioned earlier, meaning a change of greater than or equal to 2 from baseline. They assume this normal baseline, which could overestimate the prevalence of sepsis. Now, if the data was missing, and it's always really important to see how studies handle missing data. And in this case, if data was missing, they just assume normal values. And that would have underestimated the number of patients with sepsis. Right. I mean, in order to do the proper SOFA score, you need an ABG, and many patients in the emergency department don't get one. So I think to just assume it's normal, you know, I mean, that kind of throws everything into whack a little bit. So, all right. So next issue here, single center. So this was a single center study, which can limit the external validity of their findings. It would depend on how sick the patients were in the study at baseline compared to local populations. In order to generalize to your demographic, it would be helpful to know what the baseline SOFA score of this population is. So again, this paper assumed that patients had no organ dysfunction at baseline. However, they also note that many had underlying comorbid conditions, so a little contradictory. Yeah, no, it's hard to um, have confidence in that statement, right, or that assumption because of all the underlying comorbid conditions. All right, the fifth and final nerdy point we wanted to talk about was harms. Now, the harms were theoretically based on risk factors for fluid resuscitation, but we must make it very clear that they did not collect actual harms from any patients in this study. So it's theoretical. All right, that's enough talking, Nerdy. Now it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEMS conclusions. So I, I think we feel their conclusions are reasonable. Yeah, because, you know, they they used words like may result, which means may not result. And it talked about potential for harms, not actual harms. So I think that they were, I think they were conservative in their conclusions appropriately. I was just going to say that I think that this brings up a lot of questions and this paper is a good discussion point, um, even though it doesn't necessarily, as you say, have, you know, hard numbers on actual results. How about an SGM bottom line? So many people meeting sepsis criteria will not have sepsis, and that exposes them to potential harm from protocolized treatments. And how are you going to resolve the case that you presented that you were, you were not quite sure if they, they had sepsis? Okay. Well, so you're super vigilant, and you do a bedside lung ultrasound, and you see B-lines. So you sign the order for antibiotics, but hold off on the IV fluids based on the patient's sufficient blood pressure and what you just saw on the ultrasound. And it turns out that his cough and shortness of breath is due to CHF and not sepsis. So he's admitted to cardiology, they give him some diuretics, and he's discharged home a few days later. So how are you going to take this paper, Jess, and clinically apply it? So this article is a reminder that there's a balance between the potential benefits and potential harm of any treatment. If you cast the net too wide, you will increase your sensitivity, but this can be at the cost of specificity. So treating people without disease can lead to increased harm. So when the evidence is not great for benefit, such as the 30 cc's per kg bolus for every sepsis alert, we would be wise to take a moment and use our clinical judgment before relying solely on an algorithm. I like that. So you're still saying that a clinician needs to be involved 
in the decision-making process and management of patients rather than some electronic algorithm that just plugs everybody in. I like that. Right. You have to still think. Yeah, you still, you know, I always say to people, the most important tool we have is the one between our ears. Jess, the final part of this section is how do you take this paper and this clinical information and how do you translate it to the patient's bedside so you inform them in a way that they can understand what you're thinking? So what I would say is I would say, I think your cough and shortness of breath is due to fluid backing up in your lungs. Our hospital has a system to try and identify patients that might have a severe infection called sepsis. So the protocol is to give you a large amount of fluid through your IV, but my clinical judgment is that this is not a lung infection. So giving you that extra fluid could actually make you worse. The cardiologists have seen you. They agree. They're going to admit you to their service and work on getting the fluid off your lungs to make you feel better. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. And last week's winner was Dr. Nick Mitru. He is a general surgery resident at Western University who also has a Ph.D., Nick knew that Claudius Amion performed the first appendectomy. Now, this was even before I was in practice, Jess. This was in 1735. Wow. Long time ago. So what question do you have for us this week? Okay. So according to the CDC, one in X number of patients who dies in a hospital has sepsis. Yeah. So I think it's uh, U.S. data. So if you know what the number is, one in X number of patients who dies in a hospital has sepsis, then you send me an email to the SGM at Gmail with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize just like Nick will receive. Well, thanks, Jess, for helping contribute to my COVID-19 wellness and being a fabulous guest skeptic. Well, thank you, Ken. I mean, really, it was such an honor, and I hope to be able to see you in person soon. Yeah, I really, really hope we can get together soon. I want to remind everybody that the SGM has been accredited for CME credits, so you can get credits for something you're already doing. You're listening to the SGM. Now, the content, it's always going to be free, so you can get this information, and hopefully your patients will get the best care based on the best evidence. But if you want to collect some CME points, there's a small fee attached. All right, Jess, the last thing to do is to read the SGEM tagline. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. You were always on my